I also spoke with Josh Aldi. And one of the first things I think he said to me was, okay, take these questions that you had trouble with and do as deep a review as possible. That's when I kind of first realized the importance of it wasn't apparent to me at the time. I had to have someone else kind of like show me like, no, you have to do this. That was the majority of my improvement was just that deep review process. Hello and welcome to the 7 Sage Podcast. I'm J.Y. Ping, and on today's episode, I speak with 7-Sager Daniel, who scored a 172 on his January 2021 flex. This was his seventh official LSAT score. All in all, the studying took about two years. Daniel isn't a traditional applicant. He completed his undergrad while in the military, and he worked for 10 years as a police officer before transitioning to pre-law. i give you 7-Sager Daniel. So I have with me Seven Sager Can I Has JD, whose real name is Daniel. Daniel, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So I'm really excited to have you here because you have a awesome LSAT score. You scored a 172, if I have that right, from the January 2021 Flex Administration. That's right. And that is up from your first official LSAT score of a 158 back in July 2019. Yep. And in between, you have five other official LSAT scores, which makes for a grand total of seven. You are giving Sammy a run for her money. You guys are <laughs> tied for the most <laughs> most number of official LSAT scores on record to have made on 7 Sage. First of all, congratulations. 172 is an amazing score, made all the more impressive by the fact that it didn't just come naturally to you. You sent over your official scores before this, and I can see that after your 158, you had four LSAT scores hovering between 162 and 163, mm -hmm. and then a 169, and then finally a 172. So the first question I want to ask you is, what was the journey like? How did you study? How did you improve? Was it difficult to study for? It looks like the time span was about almost two years, a year and a half. Yeah, so I started off just before, maybe a month to a month and a half before the July 19 test. I was in a different career at the time. I decided that I wanted to pursue law studies. And at that time, I wasn't too informed about the process. It was just kind of like, apparently there's this test that I have to take to apply to law school mm -hmm. called the LSAT. Here's the quote unquote official prep material to prepare yourself for it. So I guess I'll just take a look at this. So I, I did that for about four weeks, just kind of familiarizing myself with the test. There was a diagnostic test. I believe I got a 154 on that and ended up taking the July 19 test. It was a five section paper test for me. I think that was the 50-50 test. Oh yes, 2019 was the last year that paper tests, that was the year when the test switched over to digital. Right, right. So scores came back, I got a 158 on that test. And at the time, I still wasn't very knowledgeable about the whole application process and the different law schools and what goes into their admissions decisions. So I got the 158 back, and I was just kind of like, okay, well, that's better than I did originally on my diagnostic. So I guess that's fine. <laughs> and I just dove into applications and kind of ran with it. No way. So it sounds like you studied for just like two months? Not even two months, maybe a month and some change. So wow, between five and six weeks, I would say. Okay. So you studied several weeks and then you took the test. You got a four point improvement from 154 to 158. And you thought it would be a good idea to apply to law schools. So now I'm curious, usually undergrads have pre-law advisors mm -hmm. that try to help you navigate the complicated process of applying to law school. Did you not speak to anyone about the fact that perhaps you could do better? Perhaps 158 
is not your personal potentially best score that you can apply with? No, no, I didn't. I'm a non-traditional student, kind of older than your normal law school applicant. And I was employed full-time at the time. I wasn't spending a lot of time on campus, just piecing together, finishing up my undergraduate degree. I see. So I didn't really have a lot of access to the pre-law advisors or just the campus in general. I see. Do you mind if I ask how long you've been out of school and what you were doing? Yeah, I was a police officer for about 10 years. Actually, back up a bit. Before that, I was in the military, and then I became a police officer. Was it undergrad, military, law enforcement? My initial two years of undergraduate curriculum was kind of pieced together throughout my time in the military and then as a police officer, just kind of wherever I could fit classes in a mix of in-person and online classes and a whole bunch of different institutions. Yeah. So my transcript is very long. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> so I kind of pieced together uh, an associate's degree first okay. over the course of several years. It was probably over a decade. And then towards the ending of 2018, I just found myself in a position to be able to finish my undergraduate degree. So I enrolled in the state university system here in Hawaii and was able to do that. I see. So that really is non-traditional. Yeah. <laughs> most seven stagers, which is representative of most law school applicants, just go through the K to JD or they're out for maybe a year or two. Man, okay. So now I kind of want to back up and ask you a motivational question before we get into the nitty gritty of LSAT studies. What made you decide to pursue law? So it was a lot of things. I guess over the years that I spent in law enforcement, I started realizing that maybe we're not doing this the best way we can. We can obviously do better. I wasn't really satisfied with the way my agency was handling crime and just handling its duties. And the first direction that I went was that it seems like prosecution informs law enforcement practices a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, like a prosecutor will kind of say like, okay, yeah, this is the law in order to take this case, we're going to need it to happen like this, you know, or you guys are going to have to have like these kinds of elements or whatever the case may be. So they have a lot of influence on how the law is enforced. Right. So my initial thought was, hey, you know what, if I want to try and make things better, maybe that's the place to do it from. I see. So that was kind of what got me interested in studying law initially. And then as time went on, I wasn't able to yet. I hadn't finished my degree yet. So that kind of motivation just evolved into something broader, I guess. I kind of realized like, hey, you know what, if, you, if you're going to put out a fire, you don't do it from inside the burning building, right? Mm. It's probably better to get out first. And it just kind of evolved from there as I experienced more of what actually takes place in law enforcement, where the law is actually applied, you know? Yeah. Just kind of broadened my scope. I got more interested in like defense and different ways, public interest, different ways to kind of affect more positive change than I was doing there. Now I understand much better the lack of access you had to uh, traditional sources of guidance for students headed to law school. Mm -hmm. So let's get back to your first official test score of back in July 19, and you decided to apply with uh, 158. Did you actually go through the application process? I did. And when I applied, I wasn't sure, you know, like, is this good, the score, GPA? And I really didn't have any kind of exposure to what was important. Yeah. I guess I was just kind of winging it. I'd open the application be like, okay, I guess they want these things. So apparently I have to write some essays, you know, and, and stuff like that. <laughs> so it wasn't a very well thought out plan. Yeah. But I went through with the whole psych. I wasn't sure what types of outcomes I could expect. 
And I wasn't really familiar with the schools too. Just kind of go through the list on the LSAC site. Yeah. Just kind of be like, oh, this school looks good. This school sounds good. This school is someplace that I could see myself living <laughs> for three years. Yeah. Yeah. The whole process is just really confusing. Yeah. Did you get into any schools? I did. Yeah. I applied to quite a few. I didn't realize at the time that it was actually a lot. It was over 20 though. I think I applied to like 25 schools, if I remember correctly. Uh-huh. And they kind of span the range of rankings. I think it ended up just basically being anywhere that I could see myself. Right. I just kind of applied there. So yeah, I got into quite a few. And why didn't your pre-law journey just end there? Why didn't you just enroll? After I sent in my applications, I just kind of forgot about the LSAT. I was like, okay, I got a score. I'm good. I don't have to worry about this anymore. Put in my applications and just kind of like waited. But during that time, I started to do like a little bit more research and kind of educate myself about the differences in career outcomes, the different types of jobs available in law, uh -huh. and uh, what types of schools would best prepare you to do those types of jobs. Yeah. And just kind of getting a bigger picture of the hierarchy of, of just law schools in general. Yeah. And near the end of the year, I started to get back some waitlist results for some of the higher ranked schools mm -hmm. that I just applied to just to not have to wonder what would have happened. Like I wasn't really expecting an acceptance, but I got back those wait lists and it just kind of made me realize that, hey, you know what, maybe you should take another year and adequately prepare to take the test and potentially generate some better outcomes. I see. Is the result of your research that you had a greater desire to attend higher ranked schools? Yeah. Yeah. I guess you could say that. Once I realized that the type of work that I was interested in along the lines of like systems level, public interest work, mm -hmm. things that could actually affect the kind of change that motivated me to pursue law in the first place, those higher rank schools would set me up a lot better to achieve those kinds of career outcomes. All right. So then I see that from your first LSAT, official LSAT, to your second one it was almost a year, July 2019 to May 2020. Mm -hmm. Tell us about how you study. What was different? I mean, you study more, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, what changed? So around December, when I'm starting to get those wait list results in, it was January, I believe, when I started up on Seven Sage. I think I already had an account at that time, maybe just to kind of like lurk around on the forums. But I bought the membership to Seven Sage. I started in January. And my original goal was to take the March test. Okay which ended up being canceled due to COVID-19. Mm -hmm. And one reason was to focus on a better score for the upcoming cycle. And the second reason was to get myself off some of those wait lists that I'd gotten. Right. But that got pushed back to May. May was the uh, first flex test. That was the next test I took after the uh, July 19 test. Okay. And you got a 162. So that's another four point improvement. Mm -hmm. So now we're talking about eight points total from your diagnostic of 154. Yeah. And that was pretty much a result of basically just going through the core curriculum. And I went through it. I went straight through, I believe, and just kind of jumped right into the prep tests. I think the curriculum just kind of feeds you right into them. Yeah. And kind of follow that and just started doing them. Yeah. And that score was pretty representative of how I was doing at the time, I believe. Yeah. And it's a good score. And, you know, the low 160s is a good place to be. You can get into a lot of great schools with that. But it looks to me like 
for the summer and into the fall, your next three official LSAT tests, you experience the dreaded plateau where you just went yeah. 162, 163, 163, 162. That's a perennial topic that comes up in the discussion forums. I'm sure you've seen mm -hmm. people ask, you know, yeah. variants of like, I'm plateauing at X. How do I get out of it? Right. So what did you do? Part of that was, uh, part of that, all of that was my fault. <laughs> <laughs> one part of it was I was kind of trying to miracle myself off one of the wait lists. So just taking flex tests after flex test, you know, I'd kind of run into the advice online saying these schools, they only care about your top score. And guess what? Now with these flex tests, you're not limited to the number of times you can take them. So just take them. And in my head, I was like, oh, that sounds like a great idea. So I just, I start taking all of them one after the other. Yeah. Uh, just kind of hoping for a score increase, I guess. For a miracle. Trying to will it. Yeah. <laughs> will it into existence. No, that's pretty common. I mean, everyone knows that LSAT is a standardized test. Mm -hmm. But what that means is that if it's working properly, your score shouldn't vary very much mm -hmm. from prep test to prep test. The point of it being a standardized test is that the scores are comparable regardless of which test you take. So unless you do something very different between your various takes, your score should be about the same, right. which looks like that's what you experienced. The test worked really well for you with four scores clustered between 162 and 163. Yeah. So then after four official LSAT administrations, you realize this is not working. The casino strategy is not paying <laughs> off. Got to do something different. Yeah. Part of it was that I was seeing scores that were higher than that in my prep test. Yeah. And now I know that is typical, right? Like we expect a penalty on test day. But yeah. you know, in my head at that time, I'm like, well, I'm scoring higher. So there's a good chance that I can at least kind of match what I'm scoring in the prep test. And I was seeing improvement, but it just wasn't being reflected. I wasn't able to get away from that test day penalty, which yeah. I know now is not the right strategy to just hope you perform your absolute best and everything goes your way. And those increases encouraged me to keep trying it. But in the end, ultimately, by the August test, when I actually dropped a point back down to 162, that's when I was like, okay, wait, yeah, this isn't working. I need to figure something else out. Okay. So how far off was the 162 from your prep test average? Uh, by that time, I'd hit 170 a few times. I was averaging about in the high 160s. All right. So if I looked at that, I would say that's hard evidence that you can do better. Something has to be different, though. Maybe it's process. Maybe it's a way that you're reviewing. What happened? Did somebody help you diagnose the issue? Did you self-diagnose and just proceed from there? Yeah. So I sought out the help of the Seven Sage community. <laughs> I spoke with a member that was just kind of doing their own tutoring on the side. Who was it? His name is Ben. I think his username is Mike Ross or something like that on Seven Sage. Okay. But he just kind of reiterated for me the need for real hard mechanical strategies for different question types yeah. to have a clear idea of what are you doing here? We're not just going into this relying on our intuitions to say like the best answer is just going to like jump out at me and flag me down. What's your criteria here? What's your understanding of, of the stimulus? What are these answer choices telling you? What is this STEM asking you to do? the right answer choice will give you what? Not just knowing that they exist, but actually taking the time to stop yourself and apply them. And I think that was one of the first things that adjusted my trajectory a little bit, kind of got me more, I guess, more engaged with the test when I was taking it, as opposed to it just being something that happened to me, if that makes sense. Sure. Yeah. So if I understand correctly, it sounds like 
the new strategy that you came up with was to have a very clear-cut plan of action that reacted to the type of question you were encountering. Yeah, yeah. As opposed just to this vague general strategy of, well, I'll just take it a question at a time and rely on my studies and intuitions to answer the question. In contrast to that, this new strategy is like, well, when they're asking for sufficient assumption questions, I'm going to pay attention to conditional logic, to formal logic, right? Right. And think about really what is the premise that's missing and attack the question that way. Right. And when they're asking about some other type of question, resolve, reconcile, then I have to start thinking in terms of you know, what's the phenomenon being presented? This is not formal logic territory anymore. You know, they're probably going to be invoking causation logic. So I need to be thinking in that framework. Does that about capture it? Yeah, that captures it very well. Okay. Was it just LR where you needed improvement or was it across the board? Where did you need the most improvement? It was across the board. LR, yeah. I think was my main area of focus at the time because I'd been working on logic games. I wasn't perfect there yet. I think at that time, throughout these summer flex tests, I was probably averaging about a minus four, minus six-ish around there. Yeah. But by that time, I kind of realized this is a matter of not having enough time, not having enough exposure, not putting enough work in. So the games, even when I wasn't doing as well as I wanted to be doing, progression through the games really wasn't an issue for me. I just kind of had right. more faith in the process there. You were relatively confident that the games will come. Right. For reading comp, Reading comprehension was kind of weird. When I first started off, even before I took that very first test in 2019, it was my strongest section. I was probably averaging around like a minus four, give or take, and on occasion would get down to a minus zero, minus one. Wow. And, you know, I just kind of lucked into that. However, I grew up learning to read lent itself to getting those scores initially. That's incredible. It felt good at the time because it was like this section I don't really have to worry about. Yeah. But what I found was that because of that, I didn't focus as much on that section as I should have. So I never really learned the correct strategies, the optimal way to attack a passage to be able to break it down and okay. find the reasoning structure. Okay. So I'm guessing the potential downside of that is variance in your RC score. Yes. Yeah. Sometimes you do really well, but sometimes yeah, you actually would miss. Like on average, you're not missing too many, but the variance is high. Sometimes you go minus zero, sometimes you go minus six. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But it was just those better scores that just for me, looking at was, you know, our own biases, I'm like, well, well, as you keep doing it, you'll just get better. You know, that'll kind of yeah. narrow down and get more consistent. So I never really worried about it when maybe I should have been worried about it. Okay. I just kind of like let it roll and don't worry about that. That'll come later. And I focus more on uh, drilling the games and the uh, trying to figure out what I was doing in LR. Right. I had to ultimately address that later. Yeah. I see that. Uh, if I could just quote something back to you that you wrote, hmm? um, a seven-stager asked in the discussion forums, question for 170 scores, the question kind of boiled down to how do you overcome specific weaknesses in LR section? And your response, a snippet of it, says, to do as deep as possible a written review of everything that gave you any kind of trouble. You want an analysis of the question and the test writer's objectives in this formulation, as well as a brutal introspective critique of your performance slash reaction, including a specific plan of action to address each issue. Okay, so was that something that you had realized? And as a consequence of that realization, was that what accounted for your improvement from the low 160s ultimately up into 172? Or was that something you realized, I don't know, way later, say, <laughs> once you started 
helping other students with mm -hmm. their LSAT prep. Yeah, no, so that was a huge part of my final run to uh, the 172. As I took a break after the August test and was asking around, you know, in, in the community, like, what's going on? You know, like, what's wrong with me, basically? Yeah. Can anyone help me? <laughs> Speaking with Ben, I got those strategies kind of reiterated to me, the importance of being able to apply them. And then uh, I also spoke with uh, Josh Aldi a few times. And he was the one that actually pointed me in that direction. One of the first things I think he said to me was, okay, take these questions that you had trouble with and do as deep a review as possible and then come back and we'll go over it. And that's when I kind of first realized, just like those question type strategies, it's in the core curriculum to review everything that gave you problems afterwards. But I think the importance of it wasn't apparent to me at the time. I had to have someone else kind of like show me like, no, you have to do this. That was the majority of my improvement was just that deep review process. I think part of the difficulty is precisely in that reflected in what you just said about how I know it's important, but it just didn't occur to me that it was until someone else pointed out to me. There is something hard to reach about that realization. As pedantic, as obvious as it might seem on the surface, students tend not to do this. Yeah. I am curious psychologically in why that occurs, but I think just making it really tangible will help students listening to this who are going through their LSAT journey right now, help them identify with, oh yeah, maybe this is, I'm hearing myself in this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this is everyone's problem that I've come into contact with and okay. work with. Yeah. Like everyone does this. Yeah. So like I would take a test, a PT or a, maybe a time section, right? And I do my line review and I check my score and I see what I got wrong. And then I'll just go and review the question, maybe watch a video explanation, maybe even go as far as like asking around in the forums, you know, like, I don't get it. Someone explain this to me, that kind of thing. But at some point, either from that review or watching the video, oh, okay, that makes sense. I see why my selection was wrong. I see why the right answer is right. And then from there, I was just like, okay, let's go. Let's see the next test. Let's do something new. Let's do something else. Let me test myself again to see if I've learned. Yeah. And after working with Josh and starting to invest myself more in that review process, that's when I realized that you've been missing the majority of value from these PTs, you're just basically leaving it on the table. So what that changed into was the review process probably became the longest part of taking that whole cycle of PTing, blind reviewing, and then a review afterwards. And then from there, doing specific drills or whatever the case may be to kind of improve on the weaknesses that you uncovered, that review process would take by far the most amount of time. And I could get from having maybe like one or two sentences written out for a question originally, and I could get to a page to two pages easily for something that I missed. How? I think for a student who might be struggling with this and who just heard you give this description and think to himself or herself, yeah, that sounds like me. I do the blind review and then I watch the videos and I go on to the next one. Like, I want to change. Mm -hmm. But it might be difficult to conceive of just what do you write about when you write a whole page on one LR question? Yeah, so like the post you quoted, it's not so much a review of the question itself. We're not solely reviewing the material. What you're reviewing is your reaction to it. It's a performance test, in essence. What you're doing is you're reviewing your performance, like you would review, you know, like tape video if you were a football or basketball player. But in this case, you're using your recollection and how you recall that you felt when you encountered this question and, and what you did, what your understanding was at the time of the stimulus versus what is it now? And is there a difference between those two? And if so, why? Whether it's because I was rushing, 
because of the time, because I misunderstood this word or just the dense kind of convoluted language just confused me. Yeah. Whatever the reason was, being able to articulate it back to yourself by writing it out is what helps ingrain that information and make it more readily accessible so that when you see that same pattern or trick again in a more novel presentation, you're able to reach back in and retrieve it and say like, I know this, I've seen this before and this is what I do. Yeah, I think you just put your finger on why it's difficult for a lot of students to do it mm -hmm. or to even realize that it's something they need to do because so much of the emphasis is placed on reviewing the question which obviously is important, obviously is a necessary condition, mm -hmm. right? You have to review the question. You have to understand the grammar of the question, right. right? You have to understand the logic of the question. You have to understand why the right answer choice is right. There's so many things that you can do just at that stage of review where you're engaged with just the content of the question. Like, can you come up with your own analogy that analogizes the flaw, mm -hmm. right? Or if it's a valid argument, can you come up with an analogy that analogizes the validity of the argument? But then what you just talked about is the next level. It's not just like once you've understood the question, then you actually have to, you know, here, if I can quote you again, brutal introspective critique of your performance slash reaction. Right. It's about the way the test writer set up the question and what kind of reaction it provoked in you. Was it the right kind of reaction or did they bait you successfully to have a incorrect reaction that led to an incorrect answer choice? Right. Yeah, that's tough. That's like... It requires a lot of self-reflection, yeah. self-awareness. Yeah. I think part of the difficulty is the review of the content and just becoming proficient yeah. in that kind of stuff. You know, like, can I just blast out this conditional language when I see it? Yeah. All that mechanical stuff, that is going to seem like the priority at first, especially if you're not where you need to be as far as proficiency. That kind of reaction, your own performance under time, under stress, that kind of takes a back seat. And then when people start taking PTs and they're not scoring where they expect to be scoring, you tend to kind of see it as, I don't know, like it reflects badly on you, like a failure on your part somehow. Like I know this material, right? I know my common flaws. Mm -hmm. I know I have strategies for these question types. But when I take a PT or when I take the actual LSAT, I don't do well. So what's wrong with me kind of thing. But I think what people don't realize is that the performance of those tasks that you learn on the test, under time, under pressure, is in itself an additional skill that you have to train on and learn to do. Yeah, I couldn't agree with that more. I mean, you can look at it as a really arbitrary setup. The fact that the test cares about this, testing your performance under stress. Mm -hmm. But it does. And it is a distinct part of the test. Like you can see that it's distinct in that other standardized tests also test this thing. Like the GMAT is kind of similar, I guess, to LSAT, but it's also very different from LSAT. But there is also a, you know, how well do you perform under stress mm -hmm. element to that as well. So in one of the discussion forums, a seven stager was asking advice about studying tactics. And specifically, the question was about how to bridge that difference between when you're taking prep tests and you're scoring at a certain level. But when you go in to take the actual LSAT administration, that extra stress results in a what we call a test day penalty mm -hmm. of a couple of points drop. And you have mentioned in response that given your specific background in the military and law enforcement, that it actually helped you to train for performance under stress. Can you just speak more about that and maybe give some advice to students that they can put into action to help them perform better 
under additional stress? Yeah, I see the test. It's more of a performance test than an academic test. Obviously, it's not about content retention, right? It's performing these certain tasks in less than ideal circumstances, under stress, under time, in a big room full of people with a proctor or alone in your room with your internet connection going in and out and the proctor interrupting you, <laughs> you know, whatever the case may be, it's not a good time. And in the military and law enforcement, that's what you train, right? You train to perform under stress, whether it's physical, mental stress, sleep deprivation, people who are upset at you <laughs> or trying to hurt you or the least ideal circumstances, you know, you're expected to be able to perform and you account for things like uh, loss of fine motor skills, degradation of your ability to make quick decisions, your critical thinking skills mm -hmm. and things like that. So I guess one, having that background helped me overcome those factors on the LSAT. And it also, like I already knew that it was something that you could overcome. So I guess it kind of kept me motivated as well. Once I started to see the, how they were kind of the same. Yeah, I really like what you said to the student about understanding the difference between when you are studying to comprehend a concept versus when you're drilling and prep testing. How they might seem similar, they're both called studying for the LSAT, mm. but those two are actually very distinct activities. Right. The latter, the drilling, prep testing, that's where you need to induce stress for yourself. In fact, you might want to induce more stress than you, you might encounter on actual test day. Right? So that actual test day seems like a less stressful situation. You mentioned that one way that you do it is you use the uh, politics and profanity noise feature on the digital <laughs> tester. Okay, yeah, I, I remember that post, yeah. Yeah, which I mean, that's the reason why we built it in there. I, I know it's kind of a hard sell because students, understandably, want to see good prep test scores when they take a prep test. So here we are telling them to induce additional stress, which we know has the consequence of lowering prep test scores, mm -hmm. right? To tell them to like get lower prep test scores. And this is another thing that you already said in that post, which is that the prep test scores don't count, right? right? Like it really doesn't count. You want to use the prep test for what it's good for, which is training. It's like when runners run with ankle weights on right. as training so that on test day, they can take the ankle weights off and it's actually less weight to carry. So that's the analogy here right. with taking prep tests and drilling. Yeah. Like you said, we know it lowers scores, right? And we just tend to take those PT scores is a lot more than they actually are. You know, like it shows that I'm not learning if I don't have this much improvement or if I see a drop in my score, something's wrong. I'm doing something wrong or maybe it's just me. I can't learn this test. And people are really hard on themselves about their PT scores. I mean, I was too. But you do kind of just have to realize at some point, it really doesn't matter. What I like to tell people now when they ask about those drops, what do I do? I just took a dive on this PT, I dropped like five, 10 points. It's like, well, it doesn't matter because doing this PT gives us this data, right? This is how you performed on this specific test. Yeah. If we do an adequate review afterwards and we make sure that we understand what happened with the material as well as within ourselves, how did we react to it? we have a plan to address it, to get better, to learn from that, then your score is effectively a 180 for that specific test. You have your prior knowledge and your capabilities, which is reflected in your performance, and then you addressed everything else. You made up the remainder of the points. And we want to see low scores. You want to get something wrong because the worst thing that could possibly happen to you is 
by some miracle, every PT that you take until your actual test, you get a perfect score for whatever reason. You just luck into a 180 on every single PT and you're confident about it. You're like, well, I'm a natural at this. I don't have to do anything. And you show up to test it and you get a actual test and your luck runs out. That would be the absolute worst case scenario. So I want to see people get things wrong. I, I want to see a low PT score because that'll show me that this is what I need to work on. It's like a friend kind of telling you, hey, you know what? I've been watching you and it looks like you're weak in these areas. So I'm going to point them out to you because I don't want you to get them wrong on test day. Yeah, I really like that way of framing what getting questions wrong on PT is in reality, like a friend actually just telling you, you need to work on these areas that, that are weak. Mm -hmm. um, to that end, I think I actually have a separate podcast episode where I just talk about why it's important when you're taking a PT to mark as incorrect questions that you guessed on. Mm -hmm. Like yeah. if you were less than 50% sure on this question, it just doesn't even matter like what you guessed count it as if you got it wrong. Like if you get it right, great. If you got it wrong, great. Nobody cares. Just count it as if you got it wrong precisely to induce this psychological reaction of like, okay, this I need to focus on this because if you actually mark it right, there's a real good chance that you're going to leave points on the table because there's a real good chance that you're going to be like, oh, I got it right. I don't really need to study. Maybe, maybe I need to study a little bit, but you know, I got it right. So I don't, and then you're just missing out on opportunity to improve on what in reality is actually a gap right. in your knowledge, right. right? I think the pushback against that advice really just comes from a place of people caring too deeply about their prep test scores. You know, everyone wants to see higher prep test scores because they think that it correlates with higher performance, which it does. Actually, high prep test scores, of course, does correlate with high performance, but it's just an indicator. It doesn't count. And the correlation is not perfect either. There are things that it's covering up. So how you calculate your prep test score really matters, right. whether it's calculated conservatively or whether it's calculated liberally really matters. But yeah, I think it's kind of a bitter pill for a lot of students to swallow. Yeah, I think most of the difficulty just comes from associating a score or a drop in score with self-worth, maybe. Yeah, I agree with that as well. I think it's really important that that conflation is not made. Mm -hmm. There are yeah. pragmatic reasons for it. It's just not helpful. And also, it's not true. Mm -hmm. This test is a really arbitrary test of a set of skills that it's like helpful for you to be an effective law student, to be an effective lawyer, but is far from defining your success as a law student and lawyer, not to mention your worth as a person, which is, I feel like when people are really deep into studying for the test, you kind of lose perspective. You think that like, because you spend so much time in your life on this test, I'm prepping for it, mm -hmm. you kind of feel like, well, the score defines my value, defines my worth. Yeah. And I remember feeling that way. It's not something that we're used to doing. It's a standardized test, but it's unlike any other one that I know of. It's real easy, especially for people who are already naturally high achievers. You know, maybe yeah. you do really good on standardized tests and in school up to this point, and you're hit with this test, which seems very similar, but it's not. But even if we know that, hey, this is a different type of test, we still carry that kind of idea with us that these scores, this is what they mean about me yeah. as a person. But except for like a very small subset of people, why would you expect yourself to be able to perform well without a lot of work? Yeah, We're not called upon to do these kinds of things, to think this way or to read a certain way that the LSAT wants us to read. But if you don't stop to think about it, it can like really get to you. But if you do stop and think about it, it's like if all I did was watch driver's ed videos and sit in a car while someone else was driving, 
you wouldn't expect me to just hop behind the wheel and drive like an expert. <laughs> I got to do it for a long time and suck at it for a long time first before I actually get good at it. So why expect that type of performance out of yourself when you know you're not there yet? You haven't done what you need to do yet. Yeah. So going back to your official LSAS scores from August of 2020, where you got the 162 to January of 2021, which is about five, six months, where you finally knocked out that 172. Would it be fair to say that the biggest realization that you can attribute that final 10-point gain to was this self-reflective, this I need to examine how I'm reacting to the test and less so the actual content like grammar parsing, logic parsing, but more so the, you know, what's going on in my head psychologically as I go through this test. Yeah, absolutely. From August on, I don't think I learned anything else about the test content or very little. Yeah. It was all about, okay, you know how to do these tasks. What can I learn about myself? Yeah. And my performance of them in testing conditions. Yeah. And how can I improve my application of these skills? That makes sense because you've already mentioned that your prep test scores, even back in August, was in the high 160s. Uh, you even crossed 170 a couple of times. And I'm guessing your blind review score was even higher for those prep tests. Yeah, I had a pretty significant, I don't know what you would call it, like a blind review gap. I think to that point, I had done a handful of 180s and the remainder were all in like the high 170s. Right. So that just kind of reinforce that it's not the actual material yeah which led me to think okay well then what the heck is it yeah if blind review is done properly it does have the power to reveal to you to disentangle mm -hmm. what the issues are right is the issue that you don't understand the content or is the issue something else and it sounded like you figured out that the issue was something else and you're able to address it so after january <laughs> Were you sad to say goodbye to the LSAT? I don't know that I've said goodbye <laughs> completely yet. I'm finding it hard to tear myself away <laughs> at this point. I've been doing it for so long. Uh -huh. One reason for that is that leading up to the January test, I felt like I finally just stabilized my score in a good range. I want to say the last four PTs that I took leading up to the test were exactly 176s with 180 blind reviews. Wow. I'd hit higher than that before, but yeah. I kind of felt like I finally locked in that consistency leading up to the test. And not just the consistency in scoring, but like crisis management, like when I would make a mistake or start to get kind of careless with timing mm -hmm. or have to go back and redo a game, just efficiency in addressing those kinds of the problems when they pop up just being more comfortable operating in the environment of the test as opposed to being super nervous about making sure that everything goes right. Yeah. Taking more of an attitude like things are going to go wrong. You can't stop that, you know? Yeah. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to screw up. But when they do, you're going to react to it calmly. I felt like I kind of had locked that in, which saved me on test day in January. I made some pretty big tactical errors with timing. I ended up going a little bit too slow and it threw me off a bit. Made some mistakes, but it was able to recover because of that kind of mindset. Can you tell us more about the timing issue? What I recall is I don't really look at the clock when I'm taking the test. I kind of just train myself not to because it just felt like it was providing like an additional stressor that wasn't really helping anything. I think by that point, mm -hmm. once you're scoring in like the 170s, you kind of get a feel for how long you're spending on each question. What had seemed to have been working well for my PTs leading up to that test was just making sure that I wasn't rushing, just kind of being calm, almost, I have the time. You know you have the time. Don't rush. Make sure you understand what's going on before you move on. That's something that I, I tell people that all the time too now, like, 
you don't have to rush, right? You give yourself like these hard stops. So I read a stimulus, I stop what's going on. What just happened here? Let me make sure I understand it because our brain just wants to go like, okay, we got it. Let's go. Let's move on. Let's see the answer. Right. We're running out of time. Right. But you got to tell yourself, okay, hold on brain. Stop. Like, do we, <laughs> do we have it really? Let's find out. And, <laughs> and that had served me really well up to that point. I think maybe I just took it a little too far in the January test. Okay. Cause I had already kind of had a little bit of a letdown with November with the 169. Right. Cause I thought like, I thought I killed that test. Like it went good. I remember finishing, I think I had like 16 minutes left over after my first round of LR and similar times for the other two sections. Wow. You just blazed through those sections. Oh my God. And I was left eventually with like triple checking answers, like second round, third round maybe. And then like, I'm good. Like, what do I do now? Kind of thing. Just going back and checking answers over and over again until the time round. So I, I just thought I killed it, but the score didn't come out the way I wanted it to. So I think because of that, in January, I was just maybe, I took it a little bit too far. Maybe I was like overly careful. And by the time I caught myself, I was significantly behind on time in the LR section. Okay. And I don't know, I haven't really put my finger on it. I was able to finish it okay. And I think maybe I just had like two or three questions flagged at the end that I just still wasn't completely sure about. Right. But I felt like I kind of pulled it off. It just wasn't really ideal. But that kind of affected me for the rest of the test. It, my mindset wasn't where it should have been. And I think just that added stress kind of affected me, especially in the game section. I just kind of felt like it was just a real grind, I guess. And some games are definitely more rule-based and you do have to grind them out, but it felt like every single game, I was like, there's no way, like I'm definitely missing something. Every single game was just kind of like grinding out every answer choice. Not necessarily brute forcing the questions, but having to do a lot more work than I knew was normal. Right. Like you kind of suspected there was a more elegant solution, right. but you just weren't finding it. So I just kind of had to fall back on, okay, so what do you do then? What's your reaction to this? What's your, what's your plan B? That's really common. Yeah. I'm glad you were able to have a fallback of just kind of grinding it out. That's super common. Like when you're practicing games, you know, you, you want to look for the inferences, mm -hmm. but you also have to realize that you're not always going to find the inferences. You just have to be good at just brute forcing your way through the questions, even without having made that big inference that cracks the game wide open. Yeah. So I finished that test not really knowing what to think. Mm -hmm. It felt way harder for me than the November test did. Right. But I wasn't really trusting myself at that point because I was like, well, you thought you killed November. And <laughs> you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> That's self-awareness. You've gained some knowledge. But it came back okay. You know, like given that how that test felt, that's why you make sure you're PTing consistently higher than you want to score, you expect the penalty. So, and this is what happened. So I was expecting maybe like a 170 and I would be happy to have pulled that off and came back a 172 and that, you know, that works. Do you know what the breakdown was? Was it released? No, they don't disclose or, or release the yeah. response sheet. With the flex, did they even release the curve? No, they did for the one released form of the March flex. Right. So of that one subject, you don't even know how many raw questions you missed. No. Not to mention like where the raw questions came from that you missed. Yeah, no. It's just a black box. All you get is a 172. Yeah, yeah. No idea. And that's pretty frustrating. Yeah. I'd especially like to see the November test that I thought I did so well on. Yeah. But I guess that's not, uh, it's not meant to be. <laughs> I mean, that test, I think it's pretty obvious that you made some false confidence errors. Yeah. Right? Like questions that you thought you got right, but you probably just felt hook line sinker for traps yeah well laid traps yeah yeah otherwise you wouldn't feel so good running out of it but this one probably the false negative where you felt a bit underconfident yeah and i think that's part of 
what kind of keeps me still tethered, I guess, to the LSAT, still kind of like, yeah. To the test, yeah. That just kind of shows that, you know, there's still improvements to be made to me, not just because of the score mm -hmm. being a little bit lower than what I've achieved in the past. Yeah. But it's an amazing test, like the psychology of it. Once you get through like the curriculum and the actual hard mechanical tasks, yeah, like how to address these questions and stuff like that, it's so amazing the, the amount of thought they put into it and how reliably it plays on your anxieties and our natural heuristics and biases. Totally. I think getting better at the LSAT just makes you a more clear thinker. At least it makes you less susceptible to rhetorical devices that shouldn't work on you. Mm -hmm. Just given the way our brain is hardwired, yeah. it works. It's just these like rhetorical tricks just work on us, mm -hmm. even though they're not logically sound. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, I also wanted to ask, you've been tutoring students, right? Yes. What's that experience been like being on the other side? Uh, it's been great. It's a lot more exhausting than, than I envisioned. <laughs> uh, credit to tutors out there, like especially the ones that helped me. I didn't realize how taxing it is. You're basically still doing the same stuff that you do when you're preparing for the test yourself, times that by 10, because you're working with people that think about the test differently. Yeah. We all learn differently. Yeah. And have a wider range of difficulties with the material to address. I think if you do it well, it can be a pretty demanding job. <laughs> it was definitely rewarding though, especially being able to pass on those insights that I feel like kind of came a lot harder to me. You know, if you can help someone else out without having to go through all of that, then, you know, that's great. Yeah. And I think that's what's great about the community on Seven Sage. At first, I was like, well, why is everyone so helpful? You know, like, is there like, <laughs> these are going to be people that are applying at the same time as you, right? Like, <laughs> uh, it didn't really make sense, but yeah, it's great. And I enjoy it. And I think at the same time, it kind of, it's still helping me develop. I had begun tutoring people before my final test, my final test so far. And I think that also helped me kind of solidify my scores in my own prep. Because just if you're going to explain it to someone, if you're going to teach someone a concept, you have no choice but to know it comprehensively, right? Or else you can't teach it. Yeah. I say that all the time. I think teaching someone is the best way to prepare. I mean, maybe I shouldn't say it's the best way to prepare, but it's definitely a very good supplement to whatever else you're doing to prepare. Yeah. Maybe not the best way to prepare, but it's the best test of your preparedness, maybe. That's very clever. So I'm glad you got to teach even before your final test to really force yourself to be honest about like whether you get it. And yeah, I, I, I mean, for me, the feeling of having helped somebody understand something that they didn't understand before, it's one of the most rewarding feelings. Obviously, I think that's why I'm still doing this. But the last thing I want to talk about is your applications uh, with A172. Obviously, a lot more doors will open for you. Where are you now in the application process? So I'm in the best part, the waiting part. <laughs> <laughs> Great. For the record, it's beginning of March is when we're speaking right now. Right. Yeah. So I've been working with Seven Sage on the application side as well, leading up to the January test. So I had my application materials basically ready to go by the time the score came out. And then uh, I got my January score as a 172 and I asked my uh, admissions consultant, I was like, I don't know, like PTing 176, should I like retake this? And uh, the answer was absolutely not. Like, are you crazy <laughs> put, put in your applications right now? Yeah. Maybe not, not exactly those words, but that's how I read the email. Right. So I had basically all my applications were ready to go. So I sent everything in shortly thereafter. 
in uh, early February. Great. Applied to uh, the top 14 schools. Okay. Well, good luck with that. You have to update me on the results. Yeah, definitely. Hopefully uh, coming sooner than later. Yeah. And thank you so much for speaking with me today. Oh, thank you. Appreciate the opportunity to do this. Of course. If you're open to it, can you just tell listeners how they might be able to contact you online? Yeah, the best way would be through Seven Sage. We have a list of Seven Sage approved tutors in the form with a lot of really great tutors, some of whom helped me a lot when I was learning this test. So I encourage anyone who is looking for some additional help to take a look at that list, contact some of the people on there and see who just kind of resonates with you. Great. I'll link that in the show notes so people can find it. Cool. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. Hi, everyone. It's JY again. Thanks for listening. Seven official LSAT scores over two years with a seemingly insurmountable plateau, but Daniel didn't give up. I hope that having listened to Daniel talk about his experience, you've gained some insight into your own study habits. If you're prepping for the LSAT, applying to law school, studying for your law school exams, or studying for the bar, come visit us at sevensage.com. We can help. That's it for this episode. Take care of yourself and see you next time.